You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Hedge funds, you know them, you love them. How was performance in 2023? What to look for in 2024? Ilana Weinstein joins us. She's the founder and CEO of the IDW Group. And Bloomberg Shanali Bassett, who covers all of Wall Street, joins us. How cool is that? Shanali, let's talk some hedge funds. I've been waiting to have this conversation all week because what a weird year, Paul, in yes. hedge funds. And Alana is so plugged into this universe. Let's talk about performance first, though, because what's stunning is you've seen this massive melt-up in markets. And the hedge funds, by and large, across the industry, really have not kept up. Bloomberg's all-hedge index is only up about 4.8% through the year so far. And the multi-strats, which are supposed to be the kings of the castle here, are only up less than 3% on the year. Alana, what's going on? Okay, so let me unpack those numbers. Um, first off, the hedge fund index, I think, is a blend of everything. So we need to kind of go strategy by strategy to really pull out what the themes are. Long short equities, which had a really tough 21 and 22, finally, Shanali had performance. I am pleased <laughs> to sit here and say something positive, which I have not been able to do for the last couple of years. Those funds, which are a big percentage of the hedge fund universe, the directional, concentrated, tiger cubs, and similar, 
are up as much as 20%, 30%, even 40%. The issue there, which is really important, is even though they're up that much, they still have, for the most part, an enormous high watermark to have to get out of. And let's just say it's a fund that's up 35% this year, okay? You may think, and they were down about 50% between 21 and 22, you may think, okay, year one this year, up 35, they can get out of that remaining 15 or 20 next year, and then it's smooth sailing. But the reality is their AUM maybe was 13 billion at the beginning of 21, it's six and a half billion now. So that 35% is on a much smaller base of capital, and it's actually as a result, so there are very, much fewer dollars made, um, than it would have been had they made that money back up before they had the losses. And as a result, there's really another 65% to go. So that's a huge headwind for that um, uh, 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 strategy. How much more excitement is there around the industry, especially because uh, many of them have not met the market? performance still. And so even if they're up, they have two issues here, to your point, the high watermark. And the issue is uh, you could just invest in the S&P or the NASDAQ or even the SOX up 65% this year. How does that set them up into appetite, investor appetite for new hedge fund allocations next year? Well, let me also touch on the multi-managers, which you cited. It is true that blended, it's not a great result. But unpacking that, there's a lot of dispersion in that result. If you look at the more established multi-managers um, that have been around a while and have built a mousetrap that is very difficult to compete with, funds like Citadel leading the pack up 15%, which is a very different number than what you cited, or Millennium 0.72 up double digits, and then the rest are struggling. And that has a lot to do. So when we, to answer your question, LP appetite, you know, the reality is the reason the other multi-managers grew so quickly is because the more established players were either closed or very deliberate about how they grew. And if you can't allocate to the more established guys, or at least not at the level you'd like, then you end up pouring money into all these other funds that grew in the last two years hand over fist. And when I say quickly, I mean between three and eight X. Think about that. Over a 24 to 36 month period, it is very difficult to deploy that kind of capital growth and and hire a winning team in order to do that. Talent is really difficult to hire and attract. No one knows that better than myself and my team. And so um, you can't get from 1 billion to 8 billion, hire 150 PMs, and expect a great result. There's a lot more that goes into this. Okay, well, let's talk about talent because I feel like it was, you know, pandemic era where all we were talking yep. about was the competition to talent and compensation wars, who can offer uh, the best starting salaries and the biggest bonuses. We know that it has been a more difficult year in terms of actually people getting, getting paid. And we're probably finding that out uh, here at the tail end of the year. So what is your view here on, on compensation and how these firms are making themselves attractive? I think um, compensation kind of falls into one of two buckets. It's either formulaic. And for example, if you're at a multi-manager with a pass-through, you know exactly what you're getting paid. There's no mystery there. Or you're at a fund, um, which is like a single manager, where you, if you're a senior person, you have points in the fund. And then there's maybe a jump ball with respect to being able to reward you on top of that. But to the extent it's a fund that has a high, high watermark, 
there is no there hasn't been a performance fee for for example the long short equity managers in 21 for the most part there wasn't one in 22 and even though they put up this incredible performance in 23 they don't have a performance fee with which to pay those people and so to answer your question i think there's going to be a lot more frustration this year than there even has been the last couple of years those people are going to get paid more because the manager is going, the founder is going to feel he or she needs to reach more deeply into the management fee to pay them. But when you're someone who's put up hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions of dollars, the dispersion between what you're actually going to get paid this year and what you've produced is going to be very frustrating versus in previous years where there wasn't performance for the fund. I didn't put up performance as an individual, so whatever I get paid, I'm kind of okay with, because that's the ethos of this industry. It's pay for performance. Now I've put up tremendous performance, and my founder isn't really paying me something that feels in any way proportionate to what I should get paid. And I want to also highlight, as much as some of these funds lost a significant amount of AUM, we're still we're talking about falls from grace of 30 billion to 20 billion, or in the case of Tiger Global, 100 billion to 55 billion. But think about the management fee on 55 billion. That's still a billion of fees. Or on 20 billion, that's 400 million of fees. So, and these teams are relatively lean, particularly at senior levels, and everyone knows that. So it's, um, it's early still vis-a-vis -vis comp, but what we're hearing, even though the number is better, is an increased level of frustration, and I think there's gonna be more vulnerability at these funds as a result. When I left the street in the mid-2000s, I studied long and hard about whether to transition to the hedge fund business. And what I concluded then was that long, short equity, uh, no alpha left, done. Game had been played out. So I came to Bloomberg. So <laughs> my question is- And how lucky we are, Paul. And I was absolutely correct that the numbers bear that out. Um, my question is, if I'm a really good trader, I don't know, bonds, currency, something at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, Back in the day, I could just leave and go raise a couple billion dollars and then boom, that was my path. Does that still exist or does a lot of the new money coming into hedge funds go to the .72s and the Citadels? Well, as I said earlier, some of those established managers are closed or very carefully accepting right. new capital. And believe me, there's a line around the block to yep. allocate yep. to those. <laughs> but uh, two things. One, the days of leaving the sell side to go start a hedge fund, I think you'd have to be completely nuts to try to attempt to do that. Right. Good luck getting a job at a hedge fund, period, because you've spent all this time on the sell side. And back in the day, Sorry, yep. not to age you, but when you were there, you could take risk, sure. right? You could take risk. You can't do that post the financial yep. crisis. So if you're still sitting on the sell side, the reality is you're in more of a managerial role than you yep. are a risk-taking role at yep. a senior level. Um, I think it's candidly become more difficult to even launch coming from um, most hedge funds. Now, coming from a top flight hedge fund, which has a great established track record and is doing well today, that's exciting to LPs. But that group of funds has become fewer and fewer. And yes, coming out of a fund like a Citadel or a .72 sets you up in good stead to be able to launch successfully. But think about coming out of some of the Tiger Cubs are related now mm -hmm. that are still well below their high watermark. Yep. That's not exactly an exciting value proposition to LPs to say, oh, I'm going to be different, you know, and don't sort of don't worry about the last 21 and 22, you know, we're doing better now. And um, I, my approach to risk management and um, 
managing volatility is is better than what you've experienced. Also embedded in Paul's question here is there's the long short equation has been doing better, but macro has been such an exciting prospect. Currencies, fixed income, uh, the interest rate environment so drastically changing. When you're looking at uh, the types of managers, how much is the macro story part of 2024? And what does that mean for the talent story? That's a good question, Shanali, because every year I feel like it's a different story in macro. 22 was great. Uh, 23 has not been so great. So we'll see what 24 holds. It's a strategy which embodies, as we've seen, a lot of volatility. So um, I think it's TBD in terms of how they will perform. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, talent follows where there is an ecosystem which will which can navigate that volatility best. We're now in an environment, an interest rate environment that haven't been in a long time where with rates went up so much. And now they're going to be coming down. Is there a feeling within the hedge fund community that certain strategies are going to work better in 24 than maybe the past couple of years? Well, I think um, the reality is the, uh, you know, it, the bar has gone up in terms of um, not just the just the market environment, but also what LPs expect for what they're paying. And it's really the focus is, is of course, on alpha and running in a way which um, neutralizes a lot of the market risk inherent right. that has whipsawed um, a lot of the return for funds, uh, factor rotations, um, really has obscured great fundamental stock picking. And so being somewhere which can uh, isolate what is value, growth, um, momentum, uh, macro cross currents, and hedge those things out so that great idiosyncratic alpha-driven stock picking can shine through, that that's the most important thing because then it doesn't matter what the market's doing. Yep. You know, interestingly, I want to comment on something you had talked about a little earlier. We were talking about the success of Citadel in multi-strat, but it's also worth talking about the undertone of the other side of that story. You had mentioned that some firms grew so fast, so quickly, and the poster child of that this year was really Schoenfeld. This idea that a lot of money was pulled, billions of dollars was pulled from the firm. Uh, you know, they really had to look to raise capital to really fill that hole. They even considered merging with another large multi-strategy firm. Is Schoenfeld alone? Is there other struggles that we're seeing in firms like Schoenfeld, and how does that play out into next year? Totally. I, uh, you know, all these funds that grew so quickly, whether, I mean, I'm just not to just to talk about who's grown hand over fist, these funds are multiples AUM-wise of where they were even two years ago. LMR, Hudson Bay, Synctiv, Schoenfeld, as you mentioned, Verition. And you can't do that. You have to be far more deliberate with respect to thinking about what is the end state? How many PMs do I want so that I can maximize idea generation and minimize um, crowding risk? and then execute against that, and only grow as you've been able to attract talent. And I don't mean bodies, I mean talent. And talent always has options, right? If you're that good, the reality is, as one of those multi-managers that grew very quickly, you're up against the Citadels, the .72s, the Baliasnys of this world, the Millenniums competing for those people. So what are you offering that's really a differentiated value proposition? And when I hear of a fund, and this is an actual fund that grew 8x in that period and hired a, and is now has 150 PMs, 
with no real team underneath any of those PMs, and the PMs they attracted are really science experiments. Most of them have not been PMs before, don't know how to run risk in a market-neutral model, and there's no real resources at the firm to make them better. That's a recipe for disaster. And what we've learned is being a successful multi-manager is not as simple as capital, a pass-through, and PMs. It is far more nuanced than that. All right. Really great to have you join us today, Alana. And Shanali Basik as well. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Alana Weinstein uh, there from the IDW Group. It's a holiday week, guys. We're almost through it. We're like almost at the end of the year. Thank you very much. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to pivot to uh, Cam Harvey. He is professor of finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, my alma mater. Uh, I took a couple classes from Professor Harvey. I survived, I'm proud to say. I can't do claim any more success than survival, but uh, some good stuff there. Hey, Cam, I look at the 10-year treasury. I mean, I'm not a bond guy, but I mean, just a couple of coffee ago, the 10-year treasury was at 5%. Now we're at 3.82%. What's going on out there? Yeah, so it overall is very good news that that rate has gone down. Uh, and I think that... Um, that investors and consumers have revised their expectations of inflation. And this is good news. So it means that the Fed has stopped and is now talking about decreasing rates and that pressure on the long-term rates um, seems to abate it. So Cam, I mean, the market's pricing in multiple rate cuts for 2024. Do you think the market's maybe a little over its skis here or is that something that the Fed should be considering? Uh, well, <laughs> the last time I was on, I was making the case that the, the cuts should have begun uh, in 2023. So uh, the Fed overshot by pushing the short rates up so high. And the sooner that they take down some of these cuts, the better, because it does cause a lot of stress in our economy. And that stress is unnecessary, given that inflation, according to my calculations, 
is running well below 2%. And Professor, let's dig into those calculations because they're fascinating. I love reading your work, whether it's across LinkedIn or, or more broadly. And for you, it's housing, right? This is where the misinterpretation is coming in. Exactly. So, so housing is operating with a lag. So it's not like current rents or current housing prices. We changed the way that inflation is calculated back in 1982. So before 82, it was real-time inflation and housing, but now it operates with a lag. So the housing inflation that's reported in the CPI is inflation that happened a year ago. Hmm. And that component of inflation is 35% of the overall inflation. And the reason inflation has been high is that the shelter component has been running at 7%. That's what goes into the CPI. But we know that's not the case. If you look in real time, rental inflation or house price inflation is near zero or 1%. And if you recalculate the CPI with real time shelter costs, then what you see is a real-time inflation rate below 2%. And this has been very frustrating because uh, this, uh, this shelter component caused the Fed to make a mistake early on in declaring that housing uh, was no big deal and inflation was transitory. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it caused them not to move, to keep rates so low for so long. And then uh, the same mistake was made in 2023 it was obvious uh, that the only reason inflation was high was because of the shelter inflation that had happened in the past. Policy needs to be um, executed based upon real-time data, not on data that happened uh, like a year ago. In the world I cover more, which is AI, we say a lot, garbage in, garbage out. So. How are you having conversations as a professor, of course, over there at Duke? Are you trying to get this message across? Are you hearing that it's falling on deaf ears or, or more ears that are willing to listen to some of the data that should be taken into account when it comes to inflationary pressures? So uh, this has been like a more than a year-long campaign for me. And again, I'm very pleased that the Fed has changed the conversation. And the sooner they move, uh, the better. Uh, there is still a lot of risk out there. So, like, I know people are patting the Fed on the back, congratulations, mission accomplished. <laughs> no, it's way, way too early. Um, my inverted yield curve indicator, which is eight out of eight in predicting uh, recessions since the 1960s, uh, we are at the average lead time to a recession. So if you look at the last four recessions, the yield curve inverted uh, on average, 13 months before a recession, and we are at month 13 breakdown. We're at the average. So again, it's way too early. There are significant headwinds. Uh, the Fed can help things uh, by reducing the, uh, the Fed funds rate as soon as possible. Hey, Cam, I know you also do a lot of work on blockchain, crypto, fintech. Uh, you teach a, a course down there at Duke Innovation and Crypto Ventures. What's the theme that you think we should be on the lookout for for 2024 in this space? So it's interesting that we've got the two simultaneous disruptions happening. So one is in decentralized finance to change our payment system and to allow for functionality that uh, we've never had before. And we've got AI 
uh, going on at the same time. So I look at this in kind of the big picture. And the big picture, the thing that worries me a lot is just the size of the U.S. Uh, debt. Uh, so the service on that debt uh, is about $700 billion a year. And that service will increase in 2024 to be the second largest spending category for the government. So the way to get out of this problem is, well, there's three different ways. One way is to increase taxes. And that just kills growth and nobody wants increased taxes. The second way is to print money and to inflate our way out. So you print the money to pay off the debt. And that is just like a tax also. So nobody really wants that. Nobody wants to go back to that inflation. The third way is with growth. So if we increase our growth rate, then it naturally increases the tax revenue and allows us to pay down some of that debt. So we are at a cusp of a pivot point, in my opinion, in the economy with these two disruptions going on, and they potentially allow us to get on a different growth path. And it's really important that we do not fumble these opportunities by over-regulating uh, either decentralized finance or AI. We need to embrace these disruptions and to look at the benefits, not just the costs. And yep. I'm not saying this is without risk. There is risk, but the key thing is to get on a higher growth path. I don't think right. it's unreasonable. All right, Cam, that's uh, great stuff. As always, uh, Campbell Harvey, professor of finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. Um, great, great place. Highly recommended. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We dig into the geopolitical news of the week, of the month. Of course, the narrative continues to build about the Red Sea and, of course, Houthi rebels been seen to be attacking certain vessels and it basically redirecting, we understand now, half of all container ship fleets now currently no longer going through the Red Sea. They're avoiding the route. This is according to new industry data that overall is one that we can probably corroborate with our next guest. We're pleased to welcome to the show Anton Posner, who's CEO of Mercury Resources. And you're all about negotiating skills. You're about professionals from an industry basis helping you plot out your dry cargo issues. When you are looking at such a difficult supply chain management conundrum, what do you advise at this moment, Anton? Yeah, thanks, Caroline. Uh, so at this point, it's uh, a lot of wait and see in what's happening with the international uh, coalition. Uh, we are partners at Ifcorp Galbraith and, uh, and Mallory Alexander on the container side. Uh, it's right now a lot of handholding with our client base on the commodities sector to to guide them through uh, through what's happening uh, in the markets uh, at this point. So we're seeing, of course, uh, increased freight, increased insurance, uh, a lot of uncertainty, and mixed signals from uh, from ship owners, container lines, uh, and from governments. 
on what's happening uh, to uh, to basically mitigate the risk and the threats that are out there from these Yemeni armed groups. I mean, yeah, talk to us about some of the mitigation of the risks. The fact the U.S. Navy is leading this military partnership. You are out there talking to the brokers, the shippers, the government support authorities. Mm -hmm. do, do they take this as some sort of easing of concern or are they still wanting to hold back? Yeah, we're seeing some easing of concern. Uh, ship operators on the container side, like Maersk, CMA, CGM, are starting to signal a return to going into the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Uh, some uh, ship operators on the container side, like uh, Hapag Lloyd, are still holding back and not even uh, announcing uh, any kind of uh, return to that uh, to that market on the dry bulk side, which is a huge part of uh, a huge part of our business, dry bulk uh, commodities. Ship owners right now, it's naturally a time of year where it's uh, where things have slowed down. Uh, so we're seeing uh, ship owners of the dry bulk side uh, diverting ships that are already in route and ship uh, rating new cargoes for January, February timing is more of a uh, let's see what happens after uh, New Year's and what's happening on the uh, on the side to, uh, you know, on the on the news to mitigate what's happening there with the uh, with with the uh, military response. So, of course, we've seen the Navy move the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower into uh, the Gulf of Aden and off the Yemeni coast. Uh, the This 20 um, nation coalition uh, that the United States uh, announced is seemingly coming together, but there's been some hesitancy from a couple of, you know, some of the U.S. allies and some uh, nations have been reluctant to even put their name attached to it yet. So definitely some still some concerns and not right. a lot of uh, comfort. A Anton, who ultimately decides whether a ship does transit the, the Red Sea and the Suez? Is it the insurance company, the ship owner, maybe the captain himself or herself? I mean, who really at the end of the day makes that decision? Yes, yes, and yes, okay. right? It's a, it's a very much a combined situation. Ultimately, the master of the ship, the captain of the ship has the, uh, has the ultimate say, right? But they're taking instructions from the ship owner. But in this situation, uh, it really in all situations regarding commercial and merchant shipping, you have many layers on top, right? You have the ultimate ship owner, the company that owns the ship. You have the master that has ultimate responsibility for the ship. And then you have the ship operator, the company that's often time chartering the vessel and has some say over it. So uh, it's very much a combined decision. So even if a ship owner wants to order that ship to transit through the through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, if the master is not comfortable, right, the master can basically hmm. say, um, we're not taking we're not taking her through. You know, I just kind of learned today through some other discussions that while yes, the having a aircraft strike carrier group in the area is certainly intimidating and certainly represents a tremendous show of force. At the end of the mm -hmm. day, what can it really do against a bunch of terrorists? Um, you know, what's the what's the belief right. in the industry about what the, what it can really achieve? Yeah, it, I mean, right now, without having the the international will to do something and, and the geopolitics going on over over being seen to align, uh, you know, for some of our NATO allies in this case, right, to see themselves to align with the United States on the mission to to deal with this. It's been it's been walking a tight tightrope, right? So we're not even seeing strong rhetoric 
from some nations on the issue, let alone let alone deploying uh, actual military assets and naval assets to the situation. You know, some of what's been uh, written about this, uh, about the about the coalition that's coming together, as some NATO allies have, uh, instead of deploying a destroyer, a frigate, uh, let alone uh, you know any kind of hardcore military assets, they're deploying one staff officer to the team. Right. So, what signal is that sending to uh, Yemeni armed groups here? <laughs> To and that, to ship operators, right? I mean, to that end, I mean, what's fascinating is just how global and interconnected the shipping world is. I think in some of your notes, you were talking about one vessel, which is Liberia-flagged, Dutch-operated, Japanese-owned. <laughs> right. To that end, how, how does geopolitics in and of itself affect the business of shipping? Are people having to decide whether or not they work alongside certain alliances that they've always usually done so. How is that playing out in the world in which you work? Yeah, absolutely, Caroline. And what we're seeing uh, is situations, uh, hardcore examples now of ship owners, uh, dry cargo market, one example that comes to mind, right? A dry cargo ship operator that's uh, working on a a voyage of a dry cargo, a dry commodity is actually asking a large international trading firm that they're, that's their counterparty on that uh, if there's any Israeli involvement in the trade, let alone put aside the ownership of the vessel, the operations of the vessel, where the ship is going to, put that all aside, just whether or not there's any involvement uh, by Israeli uh, companies in the actual trade of the of the commodity in that particular sense. So this is really, uh, really reach far reaching, right? Uh, something else that as I was researching and getting ready for today, uh, interestingly enough, we're seeing ships now transiting through the Red Sea that are using their AIS system that's usually used to transmit data on the ship's position and load port and discharge port uh, in ETA. They're using that instead of showing uh, a discharge port of, let's say, Piraeus, Greece, they've replaced that with uh, information that says uh, armed security aboard or no Israeli involvement in the ship mm-hmm. in, the, in, this, in, the, in the slot where you would put the discharge port or the destination port so that it transmits through to the Yemeni uh, armed groups, right, uh, that, uh, that they could see that information as they're tracking the ship. Uh, in addition to uh, what's allegedly an Iranian uh, spy vessel, yep. you know, uh, that's been you know, lingering there, too. So. And touch about 30 seconds left. I mean, is there any mm-hmm. realistic solution here other than, um, I guess, a cessation of hostilities in the region? Yeah, I think uh, the others, the other solution is uh, potentially in very unsavory, right, a military solution to uh, dealing with uh, what's going on on the ground. Uh, in Yemen, and of course, I'm no expert in uh, in military matters uh, in terms of uh, how to de- how to deal with that. So I wouldn't even uh, wouldn't even venture venture that. But you could you could imagine if we're dealing with a situation where there, where uh, United States NATO allies are not even willing to uh, send more than a staff officer to a joint naval task force. Uh, what's going to you know where's the will to deal with this on on the situation on the ground where the attacks are originating from? Well, you served as an officer in the U.S. Naval Reserve, so you know a bit more than we do here in the radio studio. (laughs) But we really appreciate your time, Anton. Absolutely fascinated to get an on-the-ground feel of all the negotiations you're currently having. Anton Posner is, of course, the CEO of Mercury Resources. You know success when you see it. 
or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We want to get some expertise in this area, where the risks are, also where the opportunities are to be investing in this sort of technology. We're pleased to welcome... Jake Saper is general partner at Emergence Capital. And Jake, you know, the retort coming from the likes of OpenAI and the other foundational models has been fair use. And ultimately also the fact that they've been trying to get ahead of this in some way by striking deals with actual Springer, I think, the key publishers over in Germany, where they've sort of licensed some of their particular use of, of publications and, and writings. What will the New York Times case mean, do you think, for the training of these models? Can you put the genie back in? Can you in any way take out New York Times's own articles from the training of OpenAI's model? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's great to be here. Um, what I'd say is uh, this is going to create a lot of movement towards exploring open source models. Um, so OpenAI is the champion of the kind of closed source model ecosystem, which means that the data that they're training on and the code that they actually generate from it is not publicly available. And so there's lots of questions now around transparency. What data are they using? What can we use as a business if we're going to use their OpenAI models? What is happening now is an increased interest by people that consume models to explore open source models, where the data that is used to train those models is clearer, and you, as the user of the model, have the ability to manipulate the model uh, themselves. So we think that 2024, and certainly the advent of this lawsuit, is going to push businesses who are using this technology to consider open source models more seriously. So I think I'm getting comfortable with what AI is, and that's a big leap for me because it took me most of the year here. <laughs> now my question I is... I the last time we talked about it. Yeah, I, I, I just need some help on what do you think in 2024, Jake, might be some of the use cases that maybe will help the general public get a better feel for what generative AI is and what it can mean? Yeah, well, I think the good news is in 2024, we're going to move from kind of prototyping land into production. A lot of these applications are going to actually get launched um, and are going to have real impacts for for consumers. Um, you know, as you know, we focus on B2B software investing at Emergence, and we think there's going to be a bunch of exciting applications of AI in 2024. I'll give you one example. Um, we work with a company called Doximity, 
which is uh, the shorthand is LinkedIn for doctors. Um, and they provide a whole suite of tools for doctors in addition to just a social networking application, but they help doctors serve their patients. One of the things that they're using AI to do is to help doctors draft letters to insurance companies to get approval for treatments, right? That has massive yeah. implications for not just the doctors, but also obviously consumers yeah. and getting you know much more efficient. That type of thing wasn't possible a year ago and is increasingly possible today. So you're going to see those types of things uh, come to fruition. We have work with a company called Ironclad that's in the legal contracting space, and they help uh, they help companies draft contracts using AI more effectively, which allows people to process contracts more quickly and ensure they're correct. So you're going to see them kind of seep into all sorts of applications across the, the business ecosystem. A new phrase for me, and there's a lot of new phrases I'm learning as it relates to AI, co-pilots that ensure the humans stay yeah. engaged here. Explain what that concept is and if what, what are some interesting companies that maybe you've seen with that tech? Yeah. Um, so imagine that you are, um, are you're on your computer and you're searching for some piece of information. Um, the idea is, uh, historically, you would go uh, you know, to Google and look externally, or you would kind of scour all your documents internally. Uh, a co-pilot will actually pop up and give you not just a link to something, but actually an answer. Um, we work with a company called Guru that does this exact thing. So the idea is instead of searching across all of your applications, the information is actually serviced to you directly. So the concept of a co-pilot, to boil it down, is as you're doing your job, you have an assistant that is kind of next to you that helps coach you uh, on, on the right direction to go. Now, critically, there's a difference between a co-pilot and an autopilot. <laughs> autopilot is is dangerous, right? Because that's when the human shuts off their brain and the plane flies itself, and that could be bad or you know it could be good. As you're building these co-pilots, as you're building these coaches, you need to ensure that the human stays engaged and is actually inputting their new uh, their thoughts and creativity and double checking into the software. Because as we all know, AI is not perfect. Uh, there are errors that are committed all the time. Uh, that's okay in consumer applications. You know, if you're chatting with a dead celebrity using AI, <laughs> it's okay if it's wrong, right? But if I'm drafting an important legal contract or if I'm communicating with an insurance company. I need to be ensured that it's bulletproof. And a core way to do that today is to ensure that the human is engaged with the co-pilot mm. and not just clicking accept, accept, accept on whatever it suggests. When you're looking at the valuations of the companies that you're buying in the B2B space, or more broadly, when we're talking of the latest $100 billion valuation of OpenAI, when we're thinking of Anthropic reaching a run rate, revenue run rate of $850 million and potentially being valued more than $18 billion, are those valuations realistic if open source is going to become more of the the valued foundational model direction of choice or do you think really still these valuations are going to be the right source of amounts for them it's it's a really great question um there are lots of great closed source companies like the ones you named um as open source becomes more and more viable uh in 24 and 2024 and beyond we work with a company called together that helps you know companies mm -hmm. actually use uh, closed source open source models more effectively there is going to be pressure put on these open source models and so the key thing to check as you're evaluating an investment in a closed source or really any AI opportunity is retention you want there these things are getting incredible adoption right mm -hmm. initial adoption people are playing with this stuff experimenting with it prototyping etc but the core thing that will matter in 2024 in AI is retention. Are people that start using the product continuing to use the product? And the key question, as you alluded to, is in these foundational models, it, it's easiest to start with a closed source model because it's all packaged for you and you can just get, kind of uh, get it up and running quickly. But if open source models become uh, more preferred 
either because they're more easily uh, manipulable or because of the you know New York Times you know driven concerns around where is your data coming from there's going to be some downward pressure on these closed source models, which could put pressure on retention, which could ultimately put pressure on some of those valuations. And, and Jake, how are you trying to analyze the regulatory outlook for 2024? As you make these investment decisions, how are you trying to preempt? It feels sort of like crypto all over again. Everyone's trying to get ahead of where the SEC or indeed more broadly, you know, we've had an executive order here in the US, but this is gonna come down to global regulation. We've seen the EU with its AI Act. How, how do you front run that? Yeah, well, I think transparency is really important. Like understanding where you get your data from is really important. You don't want to be using copyrighted data to train your models, right? That's like, it's it's obvious, but I think people are going to be paying much more attention to where that data comes from. I think similarly, trust is going to become much more important, not just in terms of where your data comes from, but is that data actually believable? Um, you know, data bad data going into a good model is going to create a bad output. Um, I work with a, the, the CEO of, of, of Guru, Rick Nucci, calls this truth washing, mm-hmm. which is where, okay, I'm using data that comes in and the, the model spits out uh, an answer that sounds really confident, but it's wrong. Um, I think going forward, there's going to be a much uh, greater impetus put on how do you validate the data that went into training the model is not only legally for you, legal for you to use, but also accurate so that the input or the output that comes out of the model can be trusted. Uh, so as we think about evaluating investment opportunities, we're thinking about it from a first principles perspective, which is a belief that regulators are going to move in the direction. Thank you, Apple, for the uh, use of the <laughs> thumbs up there. That that this technology is going to move in a direction where um, regulators are concerned about: okay, are you is the data? Are you allowed to use the data that you are using? And is the output that's coming out of these models trustworthy, such that good things can come from it? Thirty seconds, Jake. If I bring a cool AI idea to Sand Hill Road, can I raise money? Well, as we talked about last time, Paul, Sand Hill Road is, uh, that's, the, that's the past. The future is San Francisco, the Embarcadero. That's where the cool oh, things are happening. Oh, nice. I like that. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, can you raise money? Um, well, first, I would look at your background. Um, and uh, oh, I think boy. you're an incredible interviewer. I don't know how, <laughs> how technically savvy you are. Um, right. But, good good but, I mean, the reality asked. is... There, there is going to be more media in 2024. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come to the media company. I'll write a check all day long. Uh, there, there is going to be more scrutiny of uh, AI investments going forward. And I think the key thing people are going to be looking for is that retention point. In 2023, so many AI applications were getting so much tire kicking and lots of people were using the product for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and then they would get bored or try the next hot thing, et cetera. What investors are going to be increasingly looking for in 2024 is, okay, yeah, you've got a lot of people to start using your thing, but are people continuing to use the thing indefinitely and continue to get value out of it? Right. All right, Jake, uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting uh, your insight there. Jake Saper, General Partner at Emergence Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. 
alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.